Religion and science are often seen as being at loggerheads. Two different approaches to understanding the world, with little or no common ground. Yet at the centre of this edition of Things Unseen will be a scientist and atheist who's not been shy of exploring the positive contribution people of faith have made to science. He's Jim Al-Khalili, Professor of Theoretical Physics here at the University of Surrey, and a well-known science writer and broadcaster. Among other things, he presents The Life Scientific on BBC Radio 4. I'm Abdullahim Ahmed, and in my day job, I'm editor of On Religion, a magazine about faith, society, and current affairs. As a British Muslim, and the son of Bangladeshi parents, I'm particularly interested to find out how Jim sees the contribution of Islamic thinkers and scholars to the development of science. And it intrigues me how, as a man raised by an Iraqi father and an English mother, he decided that neither of their faiths was for him, and why he was happy to go public with his atheism when he became president of the British Humanist Association in 2013. Jim, thank you for inviting us to your office. My pleasure. In the opening chapters of your book Pathfinders, in which you explore the golden age of Arabic science, you reflect on your upbringing and your family background. You mention your father was a Shia Muslim and your mother a Protestant Christian. In what ways did your parents' faith backgrounds impact on your own life and values? Well, I think, as with all children growing up, what your parents believe, their ethics, their moral compass, their worldview, is what decides the way you will begin to think, certainly when you're very young. I guess, in a way, at the time, I thought I was very lucky because I could see two worldviews, my father a Muslim, my mother a Christian, but at the same time, there was never any conflict. For me, growing up, we spoke English at home because that's my mother tongue. Allah was just the Arabic word for God. There's heaven and hell, there's Adam and Eve, the Abrahamic religions, all the things they have in common was something that was shared between my parents and throughout their 55 years that they were married, I don't think I ever heard them argue about religious faith. So it wasn't a problem for me, and I grew up believing in God. I don't know whether it was inevitable, having a multi-faith background, but at, at some point, probably around about the age of 11, 12, 13, I began to question the differences between their two faiths. And I think that then led me to question whether they could both be right. And then my interest in science, and my studying of science probably helped cement that. So probably through my teens, I moved away then from having a religious faith. So was there a moment of disbelief, a moment when you decided, well, no, religion isn't for me? Not really. I guess if there was, <laughs> I was about 17 and I... I had a girlfriend who went to my mother's church and because I was dating this girl, I was also going to church as well. And, and at the time, I didn't think, should I be a Muslim, should I be a Christian? I was more concerned with whether God existed. And I remember she dumped me for her ex-boyfriend. And <laughs> I felt so disappointed. I wasn't sure whether I was still going to carry on going to church. And I remember walking home one evening, desperately, desperately speaking out there, saying, Is there, if there's a God out there, Give me a sign, tell me that it's worthwhile for me to continue to have a faith, to carry on within that community. And inevitably, as millions of people <laughs> before, you don't get the burning bush or the revelation or the lightning strike. And then I thought, right, fine. 
that's it, I'm going to turn my back on religion. So it was partly coloured by my disappointment for being rejected by this girl, as opposed to some deep moral philosophical flash of insight that I had. But was church going, going to a mosque, were they significant parts of your upbringing? No, not really. I mean, I say I grew up in a household where we believed in God, but we weren't religious. You know, I learnt about Islam through religious studies at school because I grew up in Iraq, went to Iraqi schools, and religious studies was all about the teaching of Islam. It's not like here in the UK where you learn about other faiths as well. So I learnt about prayer and everything about Islam. We'd read the Qur'an in Arabic, and that's always the privilege of Arabic-speaking Muslims, that they can read the Qur'an in their mother tongue. But I didn't go to church, I didn't go to a mosque. We celebrated both Christmas and Eid, so that, woo, that was great. We got twice as lucky as everyone else. But otherwise, no, it wasn't a deeply religious upbringing. And when you decided faith wasn't for you, how did your parents receive this? Did it impact your relationship with your parents at all? Surprisingly not. We had, and we continued throughout the years, to have light-hearted and very good-natured discussions, particularly over Christmas time when the family all got together, about religion and atheism. My mother in particular was more devout than my father. And you could see she was somewhat disappointed that I'd moved away from religion, but it was never anything that she held against me or I held against her. We had our own private worldviews, and that was fine, so it didn't lead to any conflict at all. And you've touched upon this, but for me, as a British-born Bangladeshi Muslim, with a really strong connection to Wales, which is where I was born and raised, I feel like I'm bridging lots of different worlds, and I felt this has really helped me to see the world in different ways. How has your own background, which is very diverse in terms of language, ethnicity and faith, shaped your worldview, and in particular your career in science? I think I've been very lucky to have been brought up in this diverse cultural background. If you can see something from different perspectives, with a different head-on, from different cultures and upbringing, it allows you to empathise more with a quite different worldview, because you appreciate there isn't only one perspective, one way of seeing the world. I don't know whether it affected my thinking and training in science. That was a more traditional route. It was only probably after I qualified and really began my research career that I started thinking about the deeper philosophical implications of a scientific worldview. The public face of atheism is often defined by outspoken hostility to faith. Some atheists are particularly scathing about Islam. For example, Richard Dawkins, who wrote, Islam is, quote-unquote, unmitigated evil. You're a public atheist. You're president of the British Humanist Association. Yet you come across as remarkably different. Would it be fair to describe you as a faith-friendly atheist? Yes, that's a, probably a nicer term than one used by my colleagues that are further out on the militant side. Some refer to me as an accommodationist which is some sort of derogatory term that somehow I'm selling out. I think this is where my background has helped me. In particular, my mother. She died earlier this year, sadly, but she was very devout through to the end. And I didn't want to upset her. And also this knowledge that just because you have a religious faith doesn't mean you're somehow less enlightened, less intelligent than someone who's an atheist. 
that it's not that I can throw some logic at you and you're going to say, oh, of course, you're right, of course there's no God. If it was that simple, we'd have resolved this issue millennia ago. So I do appreciate that people of religious faith, it is profound, it's personal. We're talking about scientific evidence. Well, they have their own kind of evidence that's not sort of reproducible in a laboratory experiment, but their own kind of evidence that supports and cements that worldview. So in that sense, yes, I don't feel I need to go out and proselytize and convince you that there is no such thing as a divine creator. But and then at the same time, I would expect the reciprocal respect from those of religious faith to say, well, it's fine if you don't believe you're sadly misguided and you're missing out on a lot. But if that's your view, that's your view. So in that sense, I'm an accommodationist in that I see people of religious faith around me who are intelligent, well-meaning, good and kind, and have thought deeply about their faith. They're not all just blindly following like sheep some dogmatic ancient code that we should have grown out of by now. And to push you on the topic a bit further, are there any expressions of faith which are beyond the pale for you? Well, there are certainly many teachings of the faith that may have been of their time that are still used in the 21st century. So aspects of religious teaching that promote inequality among humans, that men and women are different, that if you're gay, you're going straight to hell and there's no you know, two ways about it. Anything within society that gives a particular religion an advantage over another. That's what I talk about as wanting to live in a secular society. That doesn't mean I want everyone to stop believing in God. It means I want a level playing field, whether you have religious faith of this, that, or if you don't have a faith at all. So those sorts of things, yes, I would argue that religion is wrong about preaching inequalities or things that no longer apply in today's world. And then, of course, any violence committed in the name of religion. I mean, some would argue there's violence committed in the name of atheism. That I take issue with because I think Stalin or, or Hitler, who didn't have religious faith, well, they weren't committing their crimes and their evil in the name of atheism. They happen to be atheists. But there is, obviously, you know, we think about ISIS and so on, there is evil in the name of religion. So I do speak out against some of these ideas that are tagged onto religion. That doesn't mean... I think everyone with a religious faith falls into that category. Looking at the new atheist movement, like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, who have been very keen to counter religion actively when it does enter the public debate, what do you make of that? Do you think the new atheism movement has been good or bad for the humanist worldview? I think it's been a good thing, and I'll tell you why. First of all, I do take issue when people talk about Richard Dawkins. I mean, first of all, I know Richard very well. And actually, he's such a charming guy. <laughs> you know? And I remember doing a programme with the chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, and he was interviewing me, and then he was going to interview Richard Dawkins the following day, and he said, do you have any advice? And I said, well, look, the only advice is you haven't met him. I know you're concerned. If you're charming to Richard, he'll be charming back. And a few days later, I got a, an email from the office of the chief rabbi saying, brilliant, he's such a lovely guy, we had a really good discussion. And I thought, right, I've brought Richard Dawkins and the chief rabbi together. I'm off to the Middle East, I can solve all the problems. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I don't like 
it when people refer to Richard Dawkins as an extremist atheist or militant atheist because he stands up and criticizes religion. Because in the same sense, you could say any imam or priest or vicar or rabbi who stands up and preaches to their congregation and says religion is good, atheism is bad, they're doing the same thing. But the other reason why it's been good is that 20 years ago, in polite conversation, you wouldn't probably say that you were an atheist. Most people will say, well, surely you should be agnostic. No one can be atheist. That's the extreme view. They've made it acceptable to be atheist because at least you can turn around and say, well, I'm an atheist, but I'm one who also respects people who have a religious faith. You can almost use Richard Dawkins as sort of the good cop, bad cop. I'm an atheist, but I'm not like Richard Dawkins. And I've spoken to Richard about this. I've said, you don't mind us using you. <laughs> Somehow you're the bad guy. Then in comparison with you, it makes us more acceptable. So what Richard Dawkins and others have done is spread the spectrum of what it means to be an atheist. We're going to come back to your work in the British Humanist Association towards the end. But sticking with Pathfinders, there's one chapter in Pathfinders which I was really interested in, and it's on Al-Biruni, the Persian Muslim scholar and polymath, who was born in the 10th century of the Common Era. He was well-versed in maths and physics and a whole raft of other sciences, and as a religious studies scholar, I was quite interested in his work on other religions. For you, how do you relate to a man like Al-Biruni, who was clearly a practicing Muslim, but also an outstanding scientist? Do you see his faith as an aberration for which you have to forgive him? Or do you respect him and see his contribution as a believer as well as a scientist? Well, certainly we have to put this into the historical context. Al-Biruni lived a thousand years ago, and many European scientists who came after the Renaissance and Scientific Revolution also had devout religious faith. The greatest scientist who ever lived was Isaac Newton. He was devoutly religious as well. So I cannot criticise al-Biruni for being a good Muslim as well as a brilliant polymath if I'm not going to criticise most other scientists up until the last century or so. Although it has been stated, not so much about al-Biruni, but certainly others of his contemporaries who were deemed as heretics by religious scholars. So uh, people like uh, Ibn Sina, Avicenna, and Ibn al-Haytham and al-Razi. These were like Beiruni, great polymaths, great geniuses, but it's debatable whether they were in fact devoutly religious or indeed even agnostic. You, know, you have to read between the lines. So I mean, even back then in the medieval times, there were those who were questioning, daring to question. And what's great is that they were allowed by the worldview at the time to question things without fear of saying, well, no, that's a no-go area. So if that was the case historically, um, that most of the scientists from Newton to Beiruni were believers, what about today? Do you think it's possible for a scientist to also be a committed believer? Or do you think that might create a contradiction for that person? To be honest, I think it depends on what area of science they work in. If you're an engineer or a laser physicist or a biochemist, then whether or not you have a profound religious faith should not and probably will not impact on how good you are as a scientist. You don't have to compartmentalise your two worldviews. You don't have to leave God outside the lab when you step in because it's not an issue. I would see that it could be a slight difficulty in some areas of fundamental science, certainly in areas like genetics, where 
having your religious faith might make you feel uncomfortable about certain avenues of research and in areas where you're really touching on the profound questions in cosmology, for instance, and the Big Bang of the universe. In order to question scientifically, even if you have a belief in God, you do need to put that aside because if you're trying to understand where the universe came from, you're not going to get very far in science to say, well, I don't know, God made it that way, let's go home. We won't make discoveries like that. So there are certain areas of science where you do have to put your religion aside. But I'm not aware of anyone who has been the poorer a scientist or researcher because they had a religious faith. It seems like you have a very clear idea of what a healthy relationship between science and religion in the modern world looks like. Could you elaborate a bit on that? I think, first of all, that people of religious faith should feel more confident in their religion. And those religions which are more tolerant, more relaxed, more accepting of changes in cultural and societal attitudes, like, you know, I don't know, gay marriage and so on, they tend to be the religions that do seem more self-assured about their faith. They don't feel under threat. I certainly worry, certainly in the case of Islam, where it's because so many Muslims feel under threat, particularly those living in the West, that they want to shroud themselves in this cocoon of identity that makes them feel more safe. And to a large extent, so much of religion is about identity and wanting to identify with a community, with an ideology, with a worldview, as opposed to a personal belief in a divine creator. And my father laments this. He says that... There's nowhere in the Quran that actually says women have to wear headscarves. A lot of his relatives, his cousins and so on, women of his generation, he's in his mid-80s now, fought for the right not to wear the headscarf. But their daughters and granddaughters are wearing the headscarf. Now, my father sees this as a step back. I see it more as an affirmation of a need to confirm their identity. So I think, how would I like to see the world... Well. I'm not suggesting that in how many decades from now there won't be any belief in God. That's not going to happen. But what has to happen is that we have to move away from religion as an identity being so important that it invades what you personally believe is the right way to live. So what responsibility do faith leaders and atheists like yourself have in cultivating this relationship? What can they do? Well, I think... Faith leaders need to come on board when we talk about wanting to live in a secular society. They need to understand that living in a secular society doesn't mean living in a non-religious society. I actually think we'd be a boring world if we all believed and thought the same thing. But living in a secular society means not giving any religious faith an advantage or certain privileges over others. So, for example, I am not a fan of faith schools. For me, faith schools are divisive because they teach a particular worldview, a particular ideology or religion that says this is right and that is wrong. And I think we need to be exposed to each other's ideas, have the confidence that we're right, <laughs> but also be comfortable that others can think differently. This opens up a very wide space of interaction for science and religion. And considering some of the ways in which the two interact, to some, the heart of religious experience is a sense of awe and wonder. 
and it's what the scholar Rudolf Otto called the terrifying but fascinating and captivating mystery at the heart of religion. And looking at your work, your documentaries, your written works, this curiosity and sense of awe seems quite important to you as well. How central has it been in the pursuit of your own research? Completely central. All my research career has been about an appreciation of the mystery of the universe, having a sense of awe in seeing how things are the way they are. The notion that I'm made of stardust is, for me, as awe-inspiring as anything that someone of religious faith could call upon. The difference for me, compared with someone of religious faith, is that even though I have what you might call a spiritual feeling about the wonders of the universe, I then don't go on and say that I have to ascribe a purpose, why that was the way it is. Someone of religious faith will want to question why and what was the purpose behind it, and I don't see a need for that. You've been president of the British Humanist Association since 2013, and your term is coming to an end at the end of this year. How have you felt it's been? Has it been worthwhile? I was a bit concerned that they might ask me to stay on another term, not because I haven't enjoyed the experience, but simply because there are commitments involved. It's an honorary position, but you're obviously expected to attend events and, and give lectures and so on and do interviews. So just from diary point of view, I'm relieved that it's come to the end. But it has been hugely enjoyable. I must say, when I first took on the role, I was slightly nervous. How would I come across? First of all, how would I come across from the secular atheist side? Am I pure enough in my atheism, having come from this background of mixed faith and so on? And also because I was prepared to say, I think it's important for interfaith, intercultural, inter-ideology dialogue. Would that be something they didn't want me to do? But also I was concerned, how would people feel of religious faith? How would the Muslim community feel? Have I become a kafir? Because my father was a Muslim, therefore I should be a Muslim. Am I going to get death threats? And none of that's happened. People have just been, they want to debate, they want to discuss, we want to exchange views. And the fact that that has been so successful and inspiring, actually, for me, I think cements the view that I was right, to adopt this less strident view of atheism. Because I don't think you convince people or you win them over or you even get them to sit down and really want to listen to what you have to say if you're going to attack them or make them feel as though they are just completely stupid for believing what they believe. There have been a lot of successes during my term. None of them are down to me. <laughs> I just happen to have been very lucky to have been president during a time when the BHA has had lots of successes. Things like getting the teaching of evolution theory in primary schools was a, a great success for us. A lot of discussions about bishops in the House of Lords, issues to do with euthanasia, issues to do with faith schools, issues to do with a recognition that those who don't have a religious faith should equally be able to celebrate Remembrance Sunday, for example. Even in a country like Britain, where we would regard ourselves as quite enlightened and secular, there are still many inequalities where those of religious faith are favoured over those who don't. So I think that levelling of the playing field has begun to happen. So how do you see the future of the humanist movement? Where do you hope it'll go in the next few years? 
While the humanist movement is certainly growing very rapidly, I'd like to think in the very near future we will get certain laws passed through Parliament, such as the humanist marriage ceremony. At the moment, you can only get married if it's not a civil partnership, if you want some sort of private ceremony, it can only be conducted by someone of a religious faith. It doesn't matter how obscure that religious faith is, but a belief in a divine creator seems to be necessary to cement people's partnership, which I think in a secular society is wrong. So I think if humanist marriages become legal, then they will join things like humanist funerals. Many people only know about humanism through humanist funerals. And humanism is essentially a celebration of life. And it says you don't need God to be good. And I'd like to think that in the future, actually, there'd be no need for humanism, that we would have learnt that we want to be good members of society simply because that defines what it means to be a human being and not because the holy book told me to behave that way. You can still value that holy book and you can still value your personal belief in a divine creator, but that's not the reason why you behave the way you do. And I wonder whether you see yourself in a role of leadership or within a public role of atheism in the future? When I step down from the presidency, that doesn't mean that I'm stepping away from the British Humanist Association. Certainly the tradition has been that for all presidents when they step down and end their term of office, they become vice presidents. And so there's a whole group of vice presidents of the BHA who are still active, and I'd like to continue to be active in that role. But I still see myself first and foremost as a scientist and as a communicator of science, as someone who wants to understand how the universe works and then wants to tell the rest of the world about it as well. But my role as a public atheist, I don't see that as my driving passion. I mean, someone like Richard Dawkins does to a large extent. Most of his pronouncements are to do with science and religion as opposed to aspects of evolutionary biology. I don't see myself as becoming more obsessive about this intercultural dialogue and the activities of the humanist movement. I'll do what I can when asked upon because that's what I want to do. But hey, let's wait and see. Jamila Khalili, thank you so much for your time. You've been listening to Things Unseen, the programme for people who think there may be more to life than the material world. I'm Abdullah Ahmed, and this edition of Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this program again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.